This episode is brought to you by the Drippers and Spitters Art Academy. Drippers and Spitters was started by the revolutionary community of creators in reaction to the dull, hidebound, fully representational traditions of the Fetchin School of Art. Now you're thinking, do I have what it takes to excel at the Drippers and Spitters Art Academy? Well, they've developed a pretest to assess your artistic aptitude. Just go to their website and download one of their assessment images. They're cartoony pictures of a deer or a turtle or a funny looking man. Now carefully, working from the template image, splatter colored goo liberally on a separate piece of paper. Or better, take a felt tip pen and put it to the paper and just leave it there for two minutes to let the paper soak up the ink in a big black blotch. Then fold up your copied image and put it in an envelope with $1 to the DNS Art Academy. Their expert faculty will carefully examine your work to determine whether it's recognizable as anything in the InCreate's dimly lit earth. And they'll get back to you with their own encouraging, open-minded assessment. And use the promo code RERED, one word, to download their advanced assessment images of a cat or bunny rabbit. And thank you, Drippers and Spitters Art Academy, for sponsoring the Rereading Wolf podcast. Warning, the following discussion is deliberately riddled with spoilers and unhinged speculation on this nearly 40-year-old book, Gene Wolfe's The Book of the New Sun. You can't read a Gene Wolfe story. You can only reread a Gene Wolfe story. Welcome to Rereading Wolf. We'll abandon the literary artifice that this is the first time you and we have read these books. We're going to try to understand, and that means considering the books as a whole. Hi, I'm James Wynn. And I'm Craig Brewer. Well, we had a lot of activity this last week. In fact, honestly, so much that we're probably not going to be able to comment on everyone. <laughs> so I'm, I apologize, but that's wonderful. And as we've said many times, there's a lot of good stuff that is happening, especially on the Facebook page. A few things we wanted to talk about before we get into the chapter. One thing we were going to mention something before, actually from a couple weeks ago, and we didn't get a chance to last time. Filippo Di Paola had a really interesting theory that you should really check out. It's from, uh, it's a September 14th post. I think he has a separate one as well earlier. Mm-hmm. And basically his, his theory has to do with the identity of the body in the, in the grave that Bodilus and Thea dug up was Thecla. And I frankly love this theory because of the dark hair of the woman they drag out and the white gown Mm-hmm. that she's wearing and there's nothing more than i want to figure out exactly how to how to put that together so give his theory a a, a check and um, i will say we're we're not without questions about it i mean it does immediately bring up timeline issues of how that would happen and you'd have some people going back and forth in time after her death to get there um, and he has some ideas about how that might have happened but i think the the main thing that does do that is that the details there between her dress and the hair it would fit and it would match up and we get so little description of her and we do get some specific things about Thecla that it does make you wonder why did Wolf choose those same details Mm -hmm. and if this was the case this is one way that it could be her I am really stuck with this theory I love it because of the association with the hair and the the white gown it's not the only reason I like it and I think it fits I can't quite work out all the timeline issues, but maybe if Severian had an ability to travel in time because of his association with the claw and he takes everyone with him for a short while, he takes the volunteers with him into the future when after 
Thecla has died and been buried, then that kind of makes sense but then you know it's very complicated yeah but i want i want this to be true (laughs) (laughs) it would change a lot of things about my understanding of what's going on in these first chapters i gotta admit that but it it i feel like it's something because of those details you gotta at least consider it sure yeah well, thank you for that one. Um, yeah, that one's definitely something we can hash out online and maybe in the future with some other things that I know that might connect to it. Um, speaking of future, <laughs> there's a bad segue. But so another comment, Ariel Bear on Facebook also was just wondering in general, how far into the future does the new sun take place? That's a good question, actually, because <laughs> I think there are a lot of assumptions about mm-hmm what it is but there's also some details that we find out later but we didn't talk about this when we were talking about it before we just talked about it as the extreme right. future well Wolf has made has made gestures that it's like a million years in the future he's made gestures that way and then he's also said things and there's questions in the book that suggest that it's nowhere near that far in the future yeah. so that's why it's confusing so just to start off jack vance if we're thinking that he's just totally copying the dying earth thing then this would be so far in the future that the sun is naturally dying out uh which is what happens in vance's books uh, unless i'm totally forgetting something but, mm, oh, but yeah. so we're, we're totally talking about the sun burning out millennia into the future um that could be there's another possibility though that this is more likely thousands or tens of thousands possibly hundreds of thousands of years in the future. What would happen then is there are some suggestions that the sun has a worm in it, is what they Mm -hmm. call it, that's been leaching off the energy. And so something's been tampering with it. And that means that it's dying out far sooner than it should. Plus, you have little things like the fact that Jonas recognizes a Korean name. If Mm -hmm. we're talking about millions of years in the future, I would assume that everything is totally forgotten. But that would have to be at least in, you know, some kind of proximity to... Yeah, because otherwise, you know, Jonas, the people he encountered wouldn't even be remotely recognizable as humans. Right, right. Or or he wouldn't be recognizable as human anymore, so. Right, exactly. So that puts it a little closer. And there's also an interview, I believe, somewhere where Wolf mentions that uh, it may be closer than we think. And mm-hmm. I forget the details of that. I wish I was more prepared for that right now, but um, maybe I can pull it up for next time. But there is one where, yeah, he talks about how he doesn't necessarily think of it as millions of years in the future. But then there's another interview where he does. <laughs> <laughs> so, so yeah, it's a, it's a hard tell. Personally, I like to think of it as truly millennia into the future, just because that gives that sense of distance. And I always think of the one image where they're, you know, they look at the archaeological site and the digging when there's just layer upon layer upon Mm -hmm. layer upon layer of of civilization. And that to me seems so much more compatible with, you know, however far into the future. Well, the idea is at least that this is the time when mankind has basically used up everything Mm -hmm. on earth. I I think uh, Wolf described it as the time when you have a family that was rich and now they've gone through all the money and you know they're they're in a big house with a lot of empty rooms and they've sold off the furniture and you know they're they're very poor but the the remnants of their of their wealth are still there yeah the other thing that would be fun to work out and i'm certainly not going to do it now but i know that would interest you is if we could figure out which constellations are still mentioned and are still present and it would depend on knowing how detailed wolf got into figuring out how constellations would move (laughs) over time (laughs) but that would you know if we're if we're assuming he worked out the details that well then you know if we ever got a solid sort of navigational point then maybe we could figure it out (laughs) <laughs> but well, but even then, 
you know, the constellations do move if they're assuming they're recognizable, but they come back to their places eventually. So that's true. You can have, you know, multiple iterations of, of that. So even that's that doesn't true. necessarily prove anything. Unless we're so many millions of years in the future that all the stars yeah. are actually in different Scattered, places. yes. <laughs> all right. Well, uh, Mike Benowitz had a really interesting conversation about Triscola. Yeah, a great post and great conversation that started. But one thing he mentioned about why he likes it so much is the the chapter, while it is like, like we had said, it feels a bit like the one-off episode with the the dog. Of course, it does have all kinds of connections to the rest of the book too. But the one thing that he mentioned was how it's really showing Severian's first show of mercy, mm-hmm. which is a nice connection or at least contrast to where, you know, he kills a man in the first chapter. And this is the first one where he saves someone. And it's the first step in his um, redemption, I guess right. you could say. To me, what I really like about that point is that all of his worry uh, that we talked about where he's really worried or I felt like he's really worried about being responsible for the first time just throws that into more sharp relief that it's it's another way to really say that he's really kind of coming to terms with, hey, this is a different way for me to act and a different way to act than I've been raised to do. Right. So, yeah, I think that's absolutely an important point to bring up about why the dog is here. It's not just that it's a not just a cute little boy and his dog story but it really is the first time that he resurrects someone else or something else and that he realizes he can heal as well as harm he also had a uh a, an interesting comment about the autark's face on the coin and his argument is that essentially when he received the coin he assumed that he was being entered into the army of Bodalus. And little did he know that he received this coin, but it was actually a symbol of being entered into the army of the Autark, which he would eventually be the Autark. And so when he looks at it, that's the realization that the meaning of this symbol is not the meaning he thought it was. It was not the face of Photolus, which I think is another really great reading of that last line. There's another point he makes too about how there are things in chapter four that are all about Severian getting things both right and wrong at the same time mm-hmm. in wonderful ways. And and I won't explain them all right now, but it's a great post with lots of stuff going on. So I would definitely encourage you to take a look at that one and comment on it. Wits always has some good stuff. Oh, do we want to wait? What about the emails? We got a, actually an email. Oh, that's right. So uh, Michael Mantis, Andre Driesi also wrote in on the uh, on the email. Rereadingwolf at gmail.com, just by the way. <laughs> Thanks. Since I think we've forgotten to say that a couple in a couple episodes. Yeah, well, it's on the uh, question of all our torturers. He uh, brings up a really interesting list of analogies. He brings them down the quarry, the hunter, client, torturer, consumer, merchant, enemy, soldier, subject, ruler, men, women. And he points out that all all of them are ending with to love is to destroy. So the, the disjoint, he says, is not between quarry and hunter and client and torture. All of those, of course, destroy. But men who are destroyed by women. And that is the one that is, is problematic and hard to rectify. But, you know, I was actually thinking about this one, that in Christian theology, destroy is a more ambiguous term. It means in order to... To, for there to be rebirth, there has to be destruction. Uh, as Jesus said, that if a, if a seed doesn't die, then it doesn't become a plant, doesn't grow. And that's very much like what, the way it is for earth 
and the new sun. And the concept could be, well be that the men, in order to become something better, that love for a woman can destroy this a child the, the, in, the, in the bad sense of childishness and to create a man so that it might actually make sense to some sense to, to group that with the others. Mm -hmm. And the one thing he pointed out, too, is that where destroy, when he says that that line there with the comparison is that all love that which they destroy, is that it's not necessarily thinking in terms of one thing deliberately destroying another person, like a soldier destroying the enemy, but rather the destroy might mean more like being a parasite. Mm -hmm. so that something is connected to and draining on the other thing. And then it might work backwards that way than the way that right. we read them. I don't know if I'm explaining this very well. Um, <laughs> he had a really articulate way to, to put it. But the idea is that in each of those lists, what Wolf was really doing is saying you would expect, for example, that the torturer destroys the client but actually loves them. But instead, it might be that the torturer is somehow parasitic on the client and that the torturer survives because they need the client. And it's not that they're actively destroying them, but in fact that their, their need for them um, is just as destructive as something mm. else. So a ruler needs his subjects. A soldier, need, soldier needs his enemies. The merchants need their consumers. There's the potential there that the love and the need can damage both of them mm. pretty heavily. That's a much more sophisticated way to look at it. But I liked it. I liked it a lot. Michael's got a new book coming out. He does. Yeah. Does indeed. It's, uh, I think it's due out uh, November 11th. And it's the uh, Gene Wolfe's The Book of the New Sun, A Chapter Guide. And, a chapter uh, guide. Yeah. Funny, familiar. <laughs> what, what a clever what idea. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, which honestly, I did not know. And, you know, I don't think has been really well advertised, but you're starting to, I know it's been posted now on Facebook and in the Reddit groups. So um, yeah, another, yeah. another companion book for New Sun by the Lexicon Earthus Man, which is not a bad thing and something yeah. that I'm sure a lot of folk want to grab. I need something else on that shelf. So I got empty space, right? Here. And we should note too, that there's going to be a giveaway for an electronic version, I believe. Uh -huh. A Kindle right? version, on, right. A Kindle version on Goodreads. And the information to that is on the Facebook site. And I know someone has posted that on Reddit, I believe. Um, was it you? Yeah. <laughs> it might've been you. <laughs> that okay. was me. <laughs> uh, that was you. Um, but yeah, so if you're interested in that, take a look online and you can even just search him on Goodreads. And I'm sure it's going to start on October 5th, I believe, and go for a couple days. Oh, for a full week until. Oh, some, for a full week. Okay. Until good. the 13th, Sunday the 13th. Oh, good. Good. So more information there on how you can get a, a free electronic Kindle version. We had hoped at one point to be able to comment on everything that everybody offered, but actually this week we had too much <laughs> and the chapter is already long enough. So unless we're going to give you like a three hour episode, uh, you probably need to go ahead and get to the chapter itself. Yeah. But please keep writing and we're, we're going to try and work as much in as we can. And even if we don't get it in, in the next episode, that doesn't mean that I'm not working it in into an, uh, subsequent episodes when we're talking oh, yeah. about the chapters. It, it, they always come back and these things stick in my head. I think of them for a good long time before I come to a final, uh, something that I can say about it. Well, good. Well, shall we get into the chapter? Yeah. Let's go check out some paintings. Chapter five, the picture cleaner and others. Looking forward to this one. This is a fun one. Yeah. I think for most people, this seems to be the moment when they learned how to read Wolf. I think so. When yeah. they learned what a Wolf story demanded. 
here's where we have the painting of the warrior in the wasteland seems that, that seems to be for most people what what, what what for me reading the fifth head of Cerberus was and maybe for what for you what the recognition that the towers were spaceships was yeah this one and then Alton I think are the ones that people sort of look back on I, probably Alton a little more nostalgically like I think the library you know just for bookish people the anytime you get a fantastic library you're going to be excited about it but this one still has a couple things in it that I think yeah capture capture some sentimentality about about the chapter or about the book hopefully. well I think really you know this and the next chapter are almost almost one chapter really it, mm-hmm. it, I guess Wolf thought it needed breaking up but it's essentially the same setting, the same story. And if you were to take this as a chapter and someone were to compile, you know, the top five favorite chapters in the book, this would be surely make every list. I would think so. Yeah. And the one thing too, speaking of it being chapters, I mean, it ends sort of, you know, in the middle of a scene. Mm-hmm. So where you're like, you know, somebody says, who's there? Right. Exactly. I forget the exact words, but yeah. Good. Well, let's let's jump right into the, the details. Okay. The chapter starts with the Feast of Holy St. Catherine. It's the most sacred day of the Torturers Guild. Uh, we don't go into detail of the feast. That's going to come later. Severian only explains that it's the day that an apprentice becomes a journeyman and that a journeyman who very occasionally gets elevated to master does so. And one thing we could say, too, is that it, apparently all the guilds have a feast day like this. Exactly. And yeah. I assume that for most of them, you know, that's when people change ranks or things like that. But it's mm-hmm. basically the holiday for each guild. Oh, or or marries a, a female bear. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and uh, Severian's friends, Drota and Rosha, are elevated. Severian is the next oldest of the apprentices by some significant margin, so he becomes the captain of the apprentices. The ceremony involves the masters slow walking into the room and the journeymen hoisting the two new journeymen, Drota and Rosha, on their shoulders. And they carry them outside and shoot off fireworks. And by the way, I think one thing I think is fun about the fireworks is I wondered, like, if they do that on every feast day, does that mean that their fireworks are going off all over the place for every guild on every day? Well, <laughs> like every day or something like that, depending on how many guilds there are. Yeah, well, um, we, we don't have at least, you know, a half dozen. So, but uh, so after, when they shoot at the fireworks, then at that point, the guards in the great keep fire all their weaponry in an annual gesture of enmity, quote, unquote. Yeah, and we've learned before that the very top of the tower has a gun in it, right? Like he talks about. Yeah, but I think that these are coming from the Great Keep, so. Oh, oh, that's right. So this is the, uh, this is, these are the guards uh, up at the Great Keep. So we get a mention here that the masters wear gold-traced masks. And I think that's the most detail apart from... Gerlos's eyepiece that we've heard about the masks, right? Up to this point, we've only known that they were, where we assume they're Fulligen as well. None of the um, artwork, I think, has them using, having, you know, Fulligen black masks. They only say that they're masks. I guess you're right. Yeah, I, I always assumed it was the same color, but whenever he mentions Fulligen, it's always the cloak. Right. And it's, I always, I always just assume, you know, leather masks with little, with little square oh, eye holes. Oh, okay. I had always assumed they were black. That's interesting. Okay. I'll be on the lookout for that to yeah. see if they, they do talk about that. So 
for Severian, it slowly starts to dawn on him all the responsibility that will immediately fall on his shoulders. And I think it's funny how slow, like he, he specifically mentions, I hadn't quite realized <laughs> how much stuff I was going to have to take on, which seems on the, on the one hand, seems a little naive, like, you know, you're going to be the boss, but it, it, I think it also points to maybe intentionally Severian insisting, you know, I was still a kid. Like I was still yeah. really naive. The fact that he doesn't realize he's about to be a boss and what that actually means. Yeah. And, you would think that they would have some kind of uh, handoff between him and draw. Right. It says, okay, you have to do this and you have to do that. Right. With all the detail and the things that he's suddenly responsible for. Um, but yeah. But he's not really, you know, he's had to do all these things. Now he's just responsible for forcing everyone to do them. Correct. I was sitting in the ruined chapel, enjoying the pageantry and only just conscious in the same pleasant way I was anticipating the feast that I would be senior to all the rest when the last of it was done. By slow degrees, however, a feeling of disquiet seized me. I was miserable before I knew I was no longer happy and bowed with responsibility that I did not yet fully understand I held it. Yeah, I like that line. I was miserable before I was no longer happy um, and bowed with responsibility when I didn't fully yet understand I held it. One thing about those lines that gets me is that there's an analogy there to how that symbol phrase works of that I was miserable before I was no longer happy, um, that he doesn't quite realize what he's becoming, but he already is that thing. Um, and I know it's a it's a tiny little thing. It's a bit of a stretch to say that this is exactly the same logic logic as the symbols make us. But there's an echo of that there. Yeah, yeah. And and it's a sense of, you know, emotion precedes reason. Yeah, exactly. Right. He then says that he mentions how much Drott had had to go through. He says, I remembered how much difficulty Drott had encountered in keeping us in order and that I would have to do it now. Mm -hmm. And that he remembers then he had been a second to or that Roach had been his lieutenant. And even though he was kind of with them all the time, he didn't have anyone his own age to do it. Right. He's like, Jordan had someone his own age to be his his second, his lieutenant. And right. So his solution <laughs> that he comes up with here is pretty aggressive. But it's something that I feel like this is put in here intentionally to show us a little bit about what life was actually like in the Madison Tower, mm -hmm. that it's a violent place. I mean, it's not only violent with what they're doing, but even with those sort of scenes of professionalism that they showed before, the way that authority is established among the kids is just by brutality. Yeah. He, the way he describes it is when they're what, right when they have to go change their clothes and and get ready to start serving dinner. He throws a cot up against the door, basically traps all the little kids in there, takes Iata and slams his head <laughs> violently how many times half a dozen times half a dozen times yeah um against the wall and then says all right you be my second and he <laughs> agrees and then they just go grab the next couple he can't and they talk he just out. nods <laughs> yeah yeah oh yeah yeah and it's brutal right on the one hand it shows quick thinking right mm -hmm. he all of a sudden he realizes he has to do something i suppose you could say yeah that's quick thinking at the same time it shows that his immediate recourse is is just a violent yeah but he's like well he's he's been he's the captain Everyone mm -hmm. knows he's going to be captain because he's the oldest by far. He has that title and he has that responsibility, but he doesn't get elected to it. Mm -hmm. So he's expected to seize that role and to force the other apprentices to recognize him. He'll maintain his position to some degree by brutality. And in doing so, he'll signal 
comfortingly, I think, that someone is in charge. It's a it's kind of a very insightful understanding, I think, about the necessity of the dark side of a certain kind of leadership. It could be. And this and this is the first time we see Severian in a leadership role. We know he's gonna become Autark. So what we're getting here is early in the book, kind of like either a preview of what kind of role he's actually gonna have as a leader or potentially something that he's going to look back on and try a different way to be a leader later on. Exactly. I think. Um, so we'll see. And you mentioned it. I'm not sure about the comforting part. Um, <laughs> well, you know, if you've it, ever been on a team of people, I have, where it's painfully obvious that no one is really in charge. Right. Now it's very upset, unsettling. And he says it was effective. He does say that, you know, he did have, there was no mass rebellion after that. Yeah. Only... Individual malingering, which implies that it that it that mass rebellions had happened, right? But, right. And, but how does he do it? He says, in a space of a hundred breaths, the boys had been kicked into submission. Yeah, and it also shows that one thing Severian is good at is he decides on something and he immediately takes action and does it. Mm -hmm. And there are times in here where Severian is vacillating a little bit, but I think that for the most part, he usually makes decisions and sticks with them, even if they're ultimately wrong. One of the things about his character is that he is very decisive. Mm -hmm. Yeah, sometimes when he maybe he should stop and, and consider, he goes, goes forward. Right. From a bigger perspective, the point here about the need for violence and the need for, in this case, we could call it brutality, but I think Honestly, I think it's a bigger issue in, in that Wolf is dealing with is what is the role of violence in leadership? Mm. And that's important to the book, because as we know, part of the thing that Severian's going to have to do when he goes through this test is he learns that the earth is going to have to suffer in order to get the new sun. Right. And that's actually, especially in Earth of the New Sun, that's a huge thematic issue. In Earth of the New Sun, it, it seems to me that one of the reasons why I feel like he does pass the test is that he's someone who they figure has all the regular, the good qualities of the person, but he's also willing to make that sacrifice of being totally brutal to drown the earth, um, you know, kill all the people that are going to be killed in the flood. But then he knows that in the long run, it's going to be for something better. And I think there's a big part of Earth of the New Sun that says that that's actually strength, that it's not brutality, but it's strength to evolve, strength to grow, strength to change. On a big sense, that seems really important to Wolf. Like, I feel like he actually does. I don't know that he's actually showing this in order to tell you, hey, Severian's a brutal, awful guy. Like, I think you're right. I think that Wolf definitely... Even if this is done, you know, by a kid and is shows us, you know, slamming his head multiple times, which might be going a little too far. Well, if he kills him or he causes a hemorrhage, then it, right. it's probably going to be considered to have been, right. have been a bad. So, but and that would be hard for him to re recover from as a leader as well. Yeah, he has to he has to exert his will without, but not cause serious damage. Yeah, everyone has to feel like what the, the exertion of his will is for everyone's good. You can't do that if you've killed somebody. Right. And I think I spend so much time on this because I actually feel like this is something that may turn people off of Wolf, <laughs> I think. And, <laughs> and, you know, honestly, that that this is an issue where I think Wolf isn't just straight out coming up and saying, yes, this is this is exactly how every leader should act. But at the same time, there's a core of truth here that he's going to show is really necessary in a lot of other places, not just in this book. And that's an attitude that I know people will be turned off by. But I think it's also one we need to be careful of. At least I feel like we need to be careful of saying, yeah, that's just how Wolf 
yeah. Will feels because I think he does recognize that it, it can also backfire. Sure. Um, and the fact that he's also so far just on this one page mentioned a few things that to me, Mark Severian is really naive and not quite realizing mm-hmm. what he has to go through is saying, you know, he did make a quick decision. He decided to do something. Maybe there are better ways to do it, even if he had a good intuition. Well, the thing to remember is that he's not going – by the end of this book, he is not going to be a congressman. He's going to be right. an autark. He's going to be a single-person tyrant, and that involves uh, you know, bringing a lot of people in line who don't want to be in line and with, with force and with violence. And yeah. um, it, is some, it is true that, that all government, is, to some extent, is kept afloat by, by violence. And also, he's probably thinking of uh, his time in the military, in which you also keep men in line to, in order to save their lives, but also to get them to do something that that will very has a very good chance of getting them killed. Yeah, there's this is totally academic geekdom, but you may know. I don't know if you do know. There's a, a philosopher theorist named Carl Schmidt. Uh, he was the Nazi. Right, right. But uh, he, he wrote, also he wrote, a, uh, he, he wrote a critique on democracy. Right. The big idea that he had that became really sort of popular to talk about and criticize in literary criticism circles for a while was about when you have a, a crisis or an emergency and what's the role of leadership in an emergency or a crisis. And the point there is that even democracies will always have moments where you need some leader to step in mm-hmm. and basically do what has to be done regardless of the populace is feeling. Mm-hmm. And the point of it is basically democracy even depends on tyrants at, at moments mm-hmm. of crisis, moments of emergency. What's the term for it? Ah, exception. That's what it is. It's, <laughs> it's the exception. He says that, you know, governments are always, even democratic governments are founded on moments of exception and they can't function without those. But he abandoned the exception. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So anyway, that's totally a side side issue, but it's just, it's one thing I was thinking about here. That yeah. Was, yeah. Schmidt was like super popular back in, when I was early in grad school. So oh, really? Popular is a- As something to talk about. As something to talk about and not not to sort of champion. And I mean, lots of people hated him, but it's, they would also, it was one of the useful tools to really look at sort of political ideology and all kinds of things. Mm-hmm. So yeah, anyway. So at this point, we get a bit of a repeat of the summary that Severian gave previously of a torture's life. As a captain, he gets new duties and far more freedom He's in charge of directing the apprentices and preparing meals for the journeymen and clients. He delivers messages to distant parts of the Citadel. He takes part in the guild's business in small ways. He gets to see things in the Citadel that he never got to see before. Uh, interesting things I noticed, uh, granaries with demonic cats. Yeah. Uh, views of really dreadful slums. Gangrenous slums. Gangrenous. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, yeah. uh, and a new word, uh, pinko thecken. I'll I'll try it. Pinaka thecken. Pinaka thecken. That one I looked up, and the reason I looked it up was because I kept saying pink in my head, and I'm like, <laughs> it's not pink. Well, it's like a it's like a bibliotheca. It's a it's yeah, exactly. A pinaka 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 thecken. Pinaka thecken. Yeah. Yep. If I'm reading the pronunciation guide correctly, it's pinaka thecken. That is actually a messed up version of both Greek and a Latin word i was just the english word is that is a corruption of two similar latin and greek words oh so it basically means a picture gallery right yeah yeah and usually a hallway 
So like a long hallway. In fact, uh, so there's actually part of the Acropolis in Athens has the name the Pinacotheca. Oh. And it's where a lot of the art was shown. But it's the the name of the hall is actually the Pinacotheca as a proper noun. And so here, though, we've got the Pinacothecan, which I assume the way he's using it is plural. I thought that's what I thought. Yeah. But that you have you have multiple galleries that mm-hmm. are under a single brick roof with windows in it. Right. And so the one thing that all, if you look up various Pinacothecan in museums, they're almost all long hallways. So not like rooms, but actually one long hallway that, that goes down, which is a, a perfect visual image. Mm-hmm. One thing I, I may jump ahead just a little bit, but he says that he had been walking down one of these for at least a league, which if we're taking the regular meaning of a league correctly is about three miles. <laughs> so that's one thing where I think the scale of the Citadel becomes important. Mm-hmm. How big is this place? And does he literally mean a league or is he just exaggerating or talking about what it felt like? I think that the picture that he gives is that it's not only is it very big, big enough that that a normal person never sees all of it, but that it's incredibly dense and complicated so mm-hmm. that in order to traverse it, he says that you there are you need hundreds of landmarks in, just to figure out where you're going for the places that you know about, not including the ones that you, you've never been to. And also the, when he's talking uh, to Rudison at this point, he mentions uh, Rudis says, "Oh yeah, I I know where that is. It's over behind the the witches keep, right?" And mm-hmm. and he's a little surprised to find out that the witches uh, keep at least is is more of an iconic landmark than than his guild, his the right. Madison Tower. And to jump ahead a few chapters, we also know that once he gets outside the wall of the Citadel, immediately outside, even when he's still within within viewing distance of this place, people are all like the tortures are real you're a legend so <laughs> right. um so yeah so it's another moment where i think wolf's playing with our sense of scale here in order to suggest that it's uh like you said labyrinthine but also huge mm-hmm. but also just just really large so that that no one is really familiar with everything right so the floor is flagstone with rugs like you said, it's a long hallway with arched doorways into rooms that are filled with pictures. The hall is also covered with pictures. Many are so old and sooty that he can't make them out. When he says smoke grimed or sooty like that, did you take that to be from like torches? What else could it be? Because he's had, because one of these pictures, he's, this is his third time cleaning it in his lifetime. So it's gotten sooty enough that he needed to clean it three times in however old he is, 90, 100, who knows. And then we see, he describes some pictures. Now, the first one, I've tried to imagine what this is that he's looking at, and I've never been able to. A dancer whose wings seemed like leeches. That's the first, that that one. Now, the next one I can kind of guess, I I always assumed because of the, the other famous picture that these must be real things. But even though I can kind of imagine what this next one is, I can't, I don't haven't really been able to place it. A silent looking woman who gripped a double bladed dagger wearing a mortuary mask. Which is another moment that seems totally goth. <laughs> so oh, yeah, sort of very 80s goth, goth yeah. kind of thing. Um, but yeah, I searched through the earth list and read it again to see if anyone had been able to place the other paintings. And to my knowledge, I can't find anyone yeah. who's even really given a good guess. And it's obvious from 
what we know of the main painting, we're going to see that Severian could very well and probably is misidentifying things like, are those actually leeches or is there something else that just looks like it? And so I was trying to think of other things, especially that double bladed dagger. I was trying to think of anything else in sort of iconic photography, maybe of the eighties or of you know anything at all that would look like someone in a mask holding uh, something that would look like a two-sided dagger. <laughs> I couldn't think of anything, even like advertisements. I was just wondering if that was a joke, you know, like if there was some something yeah. going on, but I'm, I'm really not sure. So that's one place where if someone listening does have an idea of what those two are, that would be amazing. For me. Oh, that would, yeah, it'd be great. I would love to know those. Next, he comes to a picture cleaner, Rudisand. Severian wants to ask for direction, but the guy is very absorbed in his work. But before we talk about him and the picture he's cleaning, let's talk about the two armagers that Severian encounters. They're water cooler talking about Vodalus and some daring theft he and his crew got away with. Maybe it was the raid on the necropolis. Yeah, I was wondering, do you think he is mentioning that? He says, Vodalus had what he'd come for, you see. Um, and the only reason I, I kind of think he's probably talking about someone else was that the people they were fighting there were more like town, like they weren't the actual guard. They were just townsfolk, right? Well, they were just people from the Citadel. But he's hearing it um, secondhand, I, and so who knows? Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. And the only reason I thought that is is thinking about the classes in the world. The armagers are supposed to be the warrior class. Mm -hmm. Is that right? So I would, I would normally be thinking he's talking about something that maybe the other warrior class had, had been involved in. But I don't know. It probably doesn't matter, <laughs> you know, in, in the long run. So we do get Vodalus, that, and of course, that's going to make Severian's ears prick up. Yeah. We get some more local color about the way torturers are viewed in the Citadel. They stop Severian and basically bully him officiously. One of them is named Racho, and he demands, what are you doing here? And Severian says he's delivering a message to Master Alton. He was just about to ask where he was, and Racho says that, it, well, if you don't know, you know where Molten is, then you don't really have any business delivering a message to him. He tells Severian to give him the message, and then he'll give it to a page to deliver. But Severian says delivering it is his job. Then the other guy steps in and he says, don't you know where this kid is from? And he relates that Severian is from the Madison Tower. And Racho's face tightens when he hears that. And the other armature gives him directions, but he tells him to wait until they've left because they don't want to look at him in front of them while they're walking. And Racho says, well, I, he'd prefer that he had him in view instead of walking behind them. But Severian lets him go. Yeah. So the only question I have about this part is how he knows that Severian is an apprentice because he's not supposed to be wearing the fulligen cloak no, or a mask not wearing that. at this point. He he's can't not be an, he's Yeah, he's still an apprentice. Um, the only reason I ask that and wonder if he recognizes him from something else is just because Racho shows up again. Uh, Racho is the one that he races against mm. uh, with Agia which is a totally out of left field coincidence that of all the people in this place, we we're just talking about how vast it is that he happens to interact with one of these two random people one more time. Right. Just another moment where I'm like, okay, it seems like that is too coincidental. Um, but again, it's when I couldn't put together what that would mean. But then when I was reading it this time and noticed that he seems to know he's an apprentice without even without any outward symbol, it just made me wonder, is there some, is this, a, it's kind of like my thing with the guy with the key <laughs> in the very beginning. It's like, is something going on here? It's just an itch, but I have no 
even real sense of what it would mean. Well, yeah, it doesn't say how he knows where he's from, but it's not Racho that that recognizes. You're right. It's friend, and I Wolf had a defense of his story of some aspect in his story where he said that basically you have to do have him do some things once you know it's possible or else it doesn't make sense in the story. In this case, you have a guy who bullied him and then later he gets to, you know, get some comeuppance. Mm-hmm. Yep. So they realize he's a torturer. One of them knows the torture, apparently knows what tortures look like. The other one doesn't, but then they um, give him some directions and then send him on his way. But I think it's funny because they're like, no, 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 let us go first. So <laughs> we don't want to look at you. <laughs> look at you while we walk. Again, a moment where before we've only seen the common people react to tortures. Now we see even the mm-hmm. um, higher classes. I mean, they're not, they're obviously not afraid of Severian, but they don't want to be reminded of the guild. Right. So now we come to the picture cleaner, Rudisand, the curator, as we'll find. Do you want to talk about the picture before the character or do the character before the picture? Um, let's be do, let's just say he hails Severian from the top of the ladder mm-hmm. and Severian seems to have forgotten that he was there. The picture, the text says, the picture he was cleaning showed an armored figure standing in a desolate landscape. It had no weapon, but held a staff bearing a strange stiff banner. The visor of this figure's helmet was entirely of gold, without eye slits or ventilation. In its polished surface, the deadly desert could be seen in reflection, and nothing more. The warrior of a dead world affected me deeply, though. I could not say why or even just what emotion it was I felt. In some obscure way, I wanted to take down the picture and carry it. But not to our necropolis, but into some of those mountain forests in which our necropolis was, as I understood even then, an idealized but vitiated image. It should have stood among trees, the edge of its frame resting on young grass. You want to talk about this now? Let's yeah, let's go ahead and talk about it, because this is, I think, the more than Rudison. This is really the center of the chapter Mm -hmm. that grabs people's attention. So when you first get the description, it's not always clear. And I I still have a vivid image in my mind of what I imagined because it struck me so much. Um, Also, because of something else I was reading at the time, Um, actually Spencer's Fairy Queen, which (laughs) is actually I think is connected here in some way or another, whether intentionally or not, whole different issue. But I remember I had an image of a knight in gold holding a huge spear with like a starched banner on it. And when I first read that description, it didn't click to me what it was supposed to be at all. I you know, I think as soon as he said warrior, my mind was off in its own way. But I re- still really remember an image of a golden knight. Yeah, I just have that that vivid image in my mind. Now, when you first heard the description, did it click for you? I, I don't have any memory of any image I had before the direct reveal, which leads me to always kind of remember it as if I recognized it immediately, what he was talking about. It was that it was an old picture of a guy on the moon. Gotcha. But what is it? What I did not pick up on, and I didn't pick up on even when I finished the chapter, was the way Wolf subtly signaled in Severian a knowledge of something that he couldn't know, but he he picks up from just mm-hmm. the air, and that is that this is a picture of the moon because he says it belongs in a in a forest, which is to say 
it's a picture of the moon <laughs> because mm-hmm. that's the, that's the moon as he as he knows it. Yeah, and I think that's a it's a subtle point that you're exactly right. I never noticed it until this time that he immediately says, "I I thought it should have belonged on the moon." And assuming he's telling the truth and not making himself sound, mm-hmm. <laughs> you oh. know, like he was super super smart. But I think the way he describes it isn't saying, "Oh yeah, I secretly knew it was the moon." It seems more like he's saying, "You know, I had this weird sense that it it belonged in this way." And he even says something it affected me deeply, but I couldn't really say why. Or, but you're right. He has some and I don't know if it's an intuitive or if there's more of a sort of plot-based explanation <laughs> that that you know other things in the story might explain about how he understood that. I think this is a favorite literary device of Wolf. You'll see it come up in a lot of his stories. Unfortunately, often he doesn't have Rudison just flatly explain what it is, and right. you're you're expected to just figure it out uh, on mm-hmm. your own and put and maybe put two and two together, maybe put a little cognitive leap in there and yeah. and figure out what it is he's talking about. It's a hint that something's there. Yeah. Certainly the further along he got, the the <laughs> the less not just willing he was to to explain it. I mean in his later books. Right. I mean it's exactly. not even sometimes clear in his later books. Like this is sort of this he slows down, he describes it. You know you're supposed to be paying attention in later books. You don't even know you're supposed to be paying right. attention. <laughs> But yeah, so this is an image of an astronaut on the moon. One thing that's kind of cool is I've never seen an exact picture that describes this. Yeah, I think it's kind of an idealized, but it's it's supposed to be a painting, right? It's not supposed to be a photograph. That's what I was wondering, because he calls it a picture. Right. He only ever calls it a picture. Right. And yeah, I don't know. Like once he says it's the moon, I'm like, oh, yeah, it's a photograph. But I don't know. He never clarified. I was when I was reading this time, I was trying to see, does Rudison ever talk about, you know, a painting or or painting versus a photograph or do they make a distinction? You know, just because he calls it a picture. I don't know. There are, by the way, tons of people who have tried to find pictures from Apollo 11 and, and some other images that would fit. There's one image of Apollo 11 that would fit if this was just a photograph, except that it's black and white. Yeah. And it was never taken in color. So that's one thing right. where, again, now, was Wolf going from memory here or did he have, if he had a specific picture in mind, was he even remembering it correctly? Who knows? Well, there's a, there's a Time Life book I had as a child called uh, We Came in Peace. And I always imagined uh, that cover of that, which I think is is actually a painting, though. No, I remember searching for this image, like trying to find, oh, I'd just be fun to find exactly the the picture that he's talking about. And that's, I think, what made me wonder, oh, is this a painting? Is this a recreation? There's another painting I know that, or another photo that I always thought was the right one, but the earth isn't in the background. So Mm, that's another problem. But you have that there. You have, that's a great thing. You have the banner, you have the stiff banner, you have the gold uh, visor, you have Mm -hmm. the earth uh, in the up in the uh in the sky you know, over his shoulder right so you know once you once it, you have enough actually to put it th- together if you knew that it was a real thing and if you but he's going to explain what it is so then you can say oh yeah look there's all the pieces there yeah and when we get the identification, we also learn a lot more about the world because the way he explains to Severian what he's looking at is he says, oh, yeah, that's the moon, but it's before all this other stuff. Happened. Exactly. Right. So we find out, OK, there are now forests on the moon, just like we described that that's that why he had that intuition mm-hmm. that it belongs there. He also mentions that the moon is closer now. 
Yes, right. Which makes all kinds of questions about why or what kind of technology they had. Like, was it intentional? Was it pulled towards the earth? Well, I got to wonder if that's a mistake on Wolf's part. If the, mm. if you assume that, okay, over time, the moon is going to slow down. Oh, so it's going to move closer and closer to earth. But that's actually not what happens. As the moon slows down, the orbit gets wider. The moon far, moves farther and farther away from earth. Oh, so you think the that some have some some people, I guess, may have said that, yeah, over time it slows. And, and so it's just a natural thing that's happened. I, however, I, thousands and thousands. Potentially. I mean, you could also uh, assume something that someone said, well, it'd be nice if the moon were closer. And so they moved it closer and sped him up, sped it up. But they would literally have to speed up its order to, orbit to keep it yeah. falling into the earth. I know. I think it's one of the other podcasts had mentioned that. Maybe the moon was intentionally pulled closer because as the sun cools, maybe there was more ice, which means less water or more ice at the poles, which means less water, which now you can pull the tides closer with the moon. I don't know. I mean, that could be. Yeah, Yeah, I don't know. That's that's just one difference about the moon that I never like. Why was it closer (laughs) when you talked about the, the possible, you know decaying orbit or something. Right. That, but it would have to be, might... but in order for it to decay closer to us, you, when you think about what an orbit is, basically what happens is something is moves fast enough so that as it falls, it can't fall onto the planet. It misses the planet, continually missing the planet. So if you slow down, then you can expand your orbit farther away. It takes longer for the falling object to, to actually you know land. So you would, if you have a wider orbit, then you can have a slower speed. If you have a closer orbit, you must have a much faster speed. Mm. You would think an engineer <laughs> would 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 know that, but well, yeah. I mean, it's a, it's a it's intuitive, but it's not. Yeah. yeah, but it's not actually the way it works. Different kind of engineering exactly. from Pringles. Yeah, exactly. He didn't. That that never that was never a problem. He had to come up with. So we're so far enough in the future at this point that the moon has not only been given an atmosphere of some kind and forested. But that the moon landing itself is a metaphor for the origin of mankind. As we would say, since mankind sat around the first fire, you know, they would say, they say, since man first landed on the moon, uh, on the Samru, in the, the Trap chapter of the Citadel Autark, Severian records, every long story, if it be told truly, will be found to contain all the elements that have contributed to human drama since the first rude ship reached the strand of loon. Not only noble deeds and tender emotion, but grotesserie, bathos, and so on. So it's this this is like for Severian's time, the time when mankind became humankind and not, you know, something else. I like that. I like that quite a bit because this is an art gallery, not a history gallery. Exactly. Right. And so art is going to be telling that kind of more mythic story. Uh, that's good. Severian kind of describes Rudisand. He says he had a weak glance reminding me of the turtles we sometimes frightened on the banks of the gill and a nose and chin that nearly met. So he's toothless, right? Mm-hmm. The government doesn't that he's working for doesn't have a top-rate health insurance package. <laughs> Rudison says, uh, so you're a torturer. Do you know I've never seen your place? And Severian says, well, I hope you never do. And Rudison says he's not worried because he's so old now that if they were to start to torture him, he'd just immediately die. 
My heart would stop like that. And he dropped his sponge into his bucket and attempted to snap his wet fingers, though no sound came. Rudizend, who is pretty old, reveals he knows where the Madison Tower is because it's behind the Witch's Keep. It surprises Severian that the Witch's Keep is more of a landmark than his tower. Rudizend explains that people don't talk about it much. It's an unpleasant concept and people don't want to think about it. Then Rudizend explains that the two bullying armagers ought to be more like exultants but they can't because they're afraid to go to war. I assume that they're not physically like exultants, but there right. is some there is some level of uh, of class that they could ascend to if they were to brave combat, but they are cowards. Which is odd too, because the armagers are supposed to be a warrior class, I thought. And it doesn't does Wolf come right out and say that in his afterward? Well, the name implies that. Um, oh, yeah, that's. He actually points out the oddity here in the the appendix to uh, Claw. He says their name indicates a fighting class, but they don't appear to have monopolized the major roles in the army. <laughs> and he also said that Valeria is of this class. He mentions that there. But yeah, so almost more like ceremonial types of fighters mm-hmm. than actual the guys doing the either the fighting or the officering. <laughs> I guess. But it's still risky enough that they don't want to be there. Mm-hmm. So before Rudison talks to him, he says, he talks about what it was like to watch him. He says, like one of those half spiritual friends who in dreams address us from the clouds, the old man said, so you're a torture. <clears throat> it's just an odd yeah. thing where he's saying, you know, where he's mixing up dreams and reality a little bit. And of course we know that we get dreams from Severian all over the place, but the way he introduces this guy is, right. is he coming from a dream? <laughs> and I know we're going to get into it, but I think that's one of the first clues in the text that make people start to really wonder about who this guy yeah, is. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Plus, we also do know that things that Severian, people that he takes to be dreams, like Malrubius, um, are not just dreams, but are actually the equesters or the the projections. Or, from- or at some point, or maybe they are dreams. It's hard to, it's hard to say for sure. But as we talked about from chapter two, where he does see Malrubius, he, you know, Maybe it wasn't a dream. Maybe it wasn't just his dying brain. Maybe it was a memory. So um, Severian, talking about the armagers, he says, they should be done away with. Voldless would set them quarrying. He said, put them to work in mines. They're a carryover from some past age. What possible help can they give the world? And Rudison said, what help was they when to begin? Do you know? And Severian says he doesn't (laughs) know. What do you think he means by that? What is that? Rudison's point? Um, I felt like that was more banter, like like Severian saying, man, those guys have outlived their usefulness. And he's like, were they ever useful? Yeah. Or like in Just the past the, age, maybe they didn't really have a have a, have a really help. They weren't any really, really good back then either. Yeah, it could also say something about the armagers in general or about how war is fought or by whom mm-hmm. in, in the society. One thing I want to go back to, too, is the point that Severian says that he was surprised that the Witch's Tower was well more well known than the Madison Tower. That's a moment that... I think you could possibly accuse Severian of being very self-centered, but it also seems more to me like Severian in the narrative is again legitimately pointing out I was a naive kid. Right. I thought point, that and I really If had- you've yeah, if you've grown up in a small town, you have a inflated idea about how central your little town and is and how well known it is. And yeah. I grew up in a little town of maybe 
10,000 at the most, at, at its highest. And they had a busy road that ran along the lake. And I, to me, it was, you know, a, a scary road. It was the highway, <laughs> essentially, going right yeah. down. And, you know, you go back and you discover, well, the speed limit on this road is 30 miles an hour. It's 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 basically yeah. four lanes, two lanes going either yeah. way. Yeah, it's, he's, he's a kid. He's finding out that the world is a lot bigger than he ever imagined. Even his town. Oh, his town. Yeah, even his town, which seems so vast um, and may well be, but it's a part of an even larger place. Mm. What's fun too is then right after that, that's when, um, or right after that line about the towers, that's when Rudison says, yeah, don't be too hard on the armagers. Yeah. <laughs> He's like, if you, if you kind of understand what all they're going through, it's a different perspective. So it's kind of a, a real quick little moment there about being you know, naive and to sort of have a, a much broader, more subtle understanding. So when, when Severian says that about how Volus would put them in the mines, they're a carryover past age, and they have that. Then uh, Rudison, it says, Rudison scrambled down from the ladder like an aged monkey, seeming all arms and legs, wrinkled neck. His hands were as long as my feet, the crooked fingers laced with blue veins. Is uh, Rudison an exultant? Um, I mean, one thing we know about the exultants is that they have they're not just tall, but they're also lanky. Mm -hmm. Right. And, and he talks about how, you know, his long, his hands are. And that's one thing that, yeah, definitely stands out. When we meet Alton in the next chapter, he just comes right out and says that Alton's an exalted. Right. Right. That's um, so here. I don't know. Um, and when he says monkey, it could mean he's kind of hunched over mm -hmm. could be part of it, but it's that line seeming all arms and legs. That's the thing that to me makes me think lanky and really long. Mm. And well, it's those, and those hands to be, they're, they're big, yeah. large, giant, very large hands, which would be interesting if how, if a lot of the curators are exultants, mm -hmm. if you're thinking about sort of a guild system, medieval class society, that someone who's an exultant wouldn't seem to need to belong to a guild because they're the aristocrats. Right. Um, but I mean, we know that in Alton's case, that the way people get into the guild is kind of random, but, or maybe random, but yeah, I don't know. I, I'm not really sure. Do you have an idea? Do you have a feeling about whether he's I have no idea. It's, a, it's an interesting, uh, I just think it's an interesting description of him. I guess another thing that to jump way ahead, that, that Rudison shows up a couple more times. He shows up at the house. Absolute. Right. Creating pictures. Yep. And there's all kinds of theories about his relationship to other artists and I suppose, especially with some of the speculation that goes on with, you know, was he related to Fetchin in some way? Some mm -hmm. people think that he was Fetchin. We'll talk about that in a second. But that might be another case where if you try, if you do connect some dots, that he might well be an exultant because of his connection to other other things in the highest echelons right. of the classes. Yeah. So he climbs down from the ladder and he introduces himself to Severian. Severian explains that he's never been to this part of the Citadel before and Rudison says that it's the best part of the Citadel, and I think he might be right. Uh, he says, we have a fetch in here that shows three girls dressing another one with flowers so real you expect the bees to come out of it. And when I originally thought that he must be talking about the Russian painter, Nikolai Fetchin, but I never could find a, a reference to this. And Fetchin is a saint's name. So, you know, mm -hmm. it could be some, someone closer to their age, to I mean, their time period. And as far as that's another painting that I 
you know, three girls dressing one another with flowers. Hard to know exactly what that is. Seems like it. I was trying to think of like art history periods. It could be Rococo. Seems more like maybe some sort of pre-Raphaelite mm-hmm. kind of thing. Um, you know, very romantic. Well, he he was painting in the twenties and and the teens. Mm. He came. He uh, he left Russia after his parents died in the famines. And he uh, settled in the U.S. He was famous for for doing portraits, and he uh, settled in the U.S. and did pictures of Native Americans, and that was his claim to fame. But he's kind of he's kind of a post expressionist uh, portrait painter and uses a lot of colors. And but uh, that's odd because the one thing he describes about it, the reason why he says the painting is so good is he says it's so mm-hmm. realistic looking. And that realistic paintings are going to come up again. Mm-hmm. But that's, if we're thinking about sort of art history periods, <laughs> realism seems like it would be pushed back a little bit more, or at least mm-hmm. that kind of accurate realism. Um, but I don't, yeah. I'm not exactly sure. We don't know much about the other guy, right? Cordelosa or Cordiosa. Cordiosa, also a saint's name. The only thing that I found or the only thing that I found about these saints is both of them founded monasteries, yeah. which I thought was interesting when we're talking about them in uh, a guild and sort of collecting groups of people. That's the one thing that I could find that really brought these guys together. Well, Rudison kind of reveals that he's not a fan of abstract art, I think. He says mm-hmm. that Cordiosa was better than the drippers and spitters. They're wild for nowadays. So, yeah, drippers and spitters, that's supposed to be like Jackson. Yeah, Paul. that's what that's what was my <laughs> that's thought. What yeah, we're, like, yeah, we're talking about we're talking about abstract art. Yeah. So realism versus modern. I mean, yeah, classic versus right. modern. <laughs> I mean, it's sort of some typical thing there could be. Um, and then he says that, you know, we get the stuff that the house absolutely doesn't right. want. And so he's sort of making fun of the of the stuff, which, yeah, makes me wonder. I mean, Thecla will talk about how. You know, it was all about fashion and wearing different, wearing special clothes for certain parts mm-hmm. of the day and that sort of very surface thing. So the idea that art is appreciated more for the the fashion of the moment will seem to fit yeah. with that, I guess, stereotype. And, and that is the thing he, he mentions is that if if the artist is here in the galleries, it means that it's not popular right now. Right. That it, it comes here. To <laughs> it comes here or to until it, it comes back in fashion and then left. It'll go back to house absolute. So he says this is the third time that he's cleaned the painting and we kind of get a glimpse into what a curator's life is like uh, because he talks about how he cleaned it once when his an apprentice to Bran Wallader, which I think is just a cool name. That one always seems like a Dickensian name to me. Yeah, well, it's a, it's a British saint, so it makes... Oh, there you go. Um, but yeah, so he's done it three times. Once when he was young, was kind of taught to to clean with it. And then he talks about how you go down in one corner and you go very, very carefully mm-hmm. up to do it. Then he says one other time when his wife was still living, which, by the way, that's the first time we hear about someone in a guild being yeah, married. That's true. No one in the tortures guild right. is married. Well, apart from the. <laughs> the bear tower. Well, the bear tower. Get, they all, yeah, they all get married. They're all family men. So, <laughs> um, but so then she's died, and now he's doing it. I guess one thing we could point out too that since relations and genealogies are so important to people, he does talk about how he had a second daughter. Right. For that, I haven't looked up to see if other people have talked about possibly who his daughters might be, but I'm sure somewhere out there has. <laughs> there must theory. have been a theory developed. Although I, 
I haven't seen any reference to his family. That's obvious. Yeah. But then he does. He says he cleans it again just because he right. wanted to. That he's gotten to that point in his life where he can do it, even though it doesn't really mm. need it. He was looking for something to do. But he doesn't say if it's something about that painting in particular or if he's cleaned a whole bunch of paintings a lot. But it did make me wonder, OK, well, is this a particularly unique painting for any other reason? It's not from what they describe. It's not placed in any particular site of honor or anything like right. that. Yeah. He says, today I took the notion to clean it again and it needs it. See how nice it's brightening up. Then he has a phrase, which I guess we can say, he says, there's your blue earth coming over his shoulder again. Fresh as the autark's fish. That that thing at the end, the autark's fish. Yes. That, but also, just to point this out, I don't buy this, but some people say, okay, as soon as he says, there's your earth, that means he's a cacogen Uh or something else. I don't, I have to admit, I don't buy that part just because... He's been presented as speaking in a very sort of casual way. And there's way. nothing alien about his upbringing. I mean, Wolf is is very good at making the strange ordinary and the ordinary strange, but still it's it's possible, but I would like it would be it would be good to to land on top of some other evidence, but I don't think no anyone has any other evidence. Right. There are a couple other things we might talk about, but first let's let's talk about that Artark's fish. The first reference we get to fresh as your autark's fish. Now, I think when you first read this, it could well be fresh as the fish that he eats for dinner. Yeah, yeah, that's um, exactly. We are also going to know about another fish. Yeah, we're going to encounter some more fish when we get to Father Inair's mirrors, right? Yep. With this one, I wonder if it's more of a game, a kind of fun hint that Wolf's put in there. But because of one of those stranger theories that comes up, it might have to do with something else. So, but we'll, I guess we can hold off on that. Well, that's the other thing is, yeah, we don't, we don't have to go into it, but uh, there's the theory that he's father and I are himself. Right. And I think the main supposed clue to that is because he describes him as an aged monkey. <laughs> and the one thing that we are told about father and over and over and over again is that he's monkey like mm-hmm. or simian or something like that. So anytime and there are a few other characters who are described as monkey-like or or primate-like or something like that. Yeah, those monkeyish arms keep showing up, and and hairy and hairy red arms. Right. So when you have that, combine that with the idea that this is that he mentions fresh as the autarch's fish when he's doing his little show-off uh, of the mirrors to Thecla's friend. They're summoning a what they call a light mm-hmm. fish or a fish made of light plus. I think the other thing that makes people wonder is because here's a figure who is going to help Severian get somewhere. And since, again, we're sort of jumping way ahead of ourselves, but since an area is someone who seems to be working to try to make sure that the right person becomes Autark, that this would be a moment when he could be helping Severian to get to Master Alton, to get mm-hmm. the books, to, to do something else. Now, all that could be. Just giving him directions down the hallway <laughs> doesn't seem like, you know, Father Nero would have to go through a <laughs> whole lot of trouble to disguise himself and leave the house absolute and get to this particular point and do all this thing just to send him directions. That would be very odd. <laughs> um, well, what if, what if, imagine he had taken the armager's uh, advice, he, which he, we find out is, is, is bad uh, directions, and it had taken him all day to finally get to uh, Master Alton, if at all. And he ended up not finding Master Alton himself 
at all. Maybe he ended up talking to someone else who took the message from him. I I suppose that's entirely possible. The reason I bring this up is that another time we're going to encounter Rudis and is at the very end of Citadel of the Autark. And Mm -hmm. he's going to come to him bearing a a message from Father Inayar. And they're going to have a, a conversation that's strange. I think it's like they're they're talking, but they're not really getting to the point of something that's really important. Mm-hmm. The only the only purpose of the conversations to me seems to be that Rudison is maybe important. And if that's the case, then we do actually have Severian interacting with Father Aniri, which is one thing that has often been pointed out is that otherwise Father Aniri is never presented in the actual narrative that he's always presented through mm-hmm. someone else um, like you know when we when we get the story of his mirrors that's severian remembering thecla remembering her friends <laughs> story about father and right. right it's like it's there are all these always all these layers between the real father and 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 actually severian but here he would be here but in a kind of disguise it's hard for me to get there though i mean if brutusend were Father Ineri disguised. He's disguised himself. Rather than Father Ineri, a cacogen, as the text tells us he is, he doesn't seem to be wearing much of a disguise, is what I'm saying in this right. case. He looks like a person. And he talks about real life events. And generally, if, when people talk like this in a wolf story, I, I tend to believe that there's some truth to it. One other bit of information that could lead to that is that the actual Saint Rudison was both a political leader and a, a warrior, and that he did in Spain both rule certain areas, but also led people in a lot of the battles mm. in Spain. And so it's one of the few times where it seems to me like the saint's name would fit one of those yeah. theories pretty well. But again, this is another place where I don't know, we'll we'll need to come back to it. You know, when we do talk about Citadel and have a bunch of, we know a lot more about Father Aniri, but at this point, I still, you know, I go back and forth. If it hadn't been for the monkey thing, I (laughs) I wouldn't buy it at all. But as soon as he specifically mentions monkey, that to me seems like one of those things that Wolf will do where he does in all of his works, in all of his books or stories, have certain descriptions of certain people that are supposed to clue you in that something's yeah. going on. Monkeys for Father Aniri, the heart-shaped face and the olive skin with Catherine and, and with a number of other characters, another of other women. So the fact that he throws in here doesn't seem like he'd be just throwing in a red herring. Yeah, it's hard to, hard to connect those two dots. They are, I, no, I admit that the the uh, the monkey arms thing uh, when that came up in the Earth list was very attractive to me because I liked all of the reference. Yeah, it's one of the hardest things to to dismiss because then you're like, oh, but he's so intentional about describing yeah. people as as monkeys. And then he goes, like oh, yeah, and, and they come up just... over and over again in this particular book. And it's not like he in every other novel he has someone with monkey arms. It's it's literally in this book that you have that. Right. Severian wants to talk to him more about, about Volus. He's kind of suspects that the reason he came down in the first place because he that Severian had mentioned Vodalus, and he, he thinks maybe he's a secret follower. And so he just to keep him talking, because he seems to know more than he's asking. He's asking just questions that he kind of understands the answer to. He says, is that the moon? I've been told it's more fertile. And Rudison said, well, now it is. Yes, it, this is. this was done before they got it irrigated. 
See that gray brown? In those times, that's what you'd see when you looked up at her. Not green like she is now. Didn't seem so big either because it wasn't so close in. That's what old Brandwallader used to say. Now there's trees enough to hide Nilamon as the saw goes. That is, it's an old saying. Yeah, as the saying. The uh, Nilamon, who Nilamon was and why he was so hard to hide is a story that never gets told. The Saint Nilamon, there is a Saint Nilamon, um, did not want to become a bishop and actually hid. <laughs> he starved himself, was right? He, oh, that it, was that it? Oh, I didn't. That's the version I found didn't have that. Oh, he, yeah, I, I, that's a good point. I didn't think of himself as hiding. He shut himself up and basically prayed and starved. Everyone would say, please stop. And he just kept praying and not eating. Yeah. Trees enough to hide Nilamon, and Severian says, or Votilus, if. And if Rudolfson is a secret Baudelaire, he doesn't let on. He says, yeah, that's right. You torturers must be rubbing your hands at the prospect of getting a hold of him. Got any special, anything special planned? And, you know, the torturers don't plan special treatments for individuals. But Severian, playing at Cagey, says, we'll think of something. And Rudolfson does does the same. He says, I'm sure you will. I was thinking before that you were on his side, but but you'll have to wait if he's hiding in the forest of Loon. And then he directs him to Master Olden. So before we leave Rudison behind, just a couple other little things that come up. He tells Severian twice that they have a fetchin, mm-hmm. which I thought was odd that he says, why this is the best part? We got art, music, and books. We have a fetch in here that shows blah, blah, blah. And then he describes a few other things. He says the thing about the house absolute doesn't want it. And then he, at the bottom, he says, we've got a fetch in here. It's the truth, <laughs> but he's already right. mentioned it. And so it's, it's hard to know. Okay. Is he just being really enthusiastic mm-hmm. and, and intentionally repeating himself or is he drawing attention to fetch in? other people are going to have possibly interacted with fetch in later on. Um, so he could be trying to repeat that, you know, again, going into the theory that this is Father Aniri and might be mentioning Fetchin multiple times to really drive that yeah. idea home to Severian could well be. Um, not really sure. When he's talking about Votilus to Rudazin, Rudazin sort of pokes fun at him and says, a minute ago, I thought yeah. you were for him. Another point where probably based on how he describes Rudazin talking, it's just, again, being playful, kind of just mm-hmm. just messing with him. But it could be another point. It's where Severian in his still very young, naive way here, I think, you know, mentions that as if to evidence that he might be caught up in a grand conspiracy. Well, if he's uh, Father Aniri, then, you know, he's part of who has been propping uh, Votilus up all these times. So, yep. So, yeah, we will get back to Rudazin later, but that's what, what we get. He gives him different directions, says that where the armagers told him to go would, the way I took this would, they told him basically to go to the, the main mm-hmm. entrance was what it seemed like, where he'd probably just have to sit and wait the for a while. The reading room, he says. Yes, exactly. And what Rudazin tells him is, here's how to get down close to where his actual office is. Right. He says it would take him four hours to get to Alton if he went, if he ever got there at all. Right. Again, which fits that idea of this being leagues right. and leaks. So it is, that's, that's actually a good point there. That makes me think that when he talks about it being, you know, having walked for a league, maybe that really was literal instead of just saying I walked for a long time. Yeah. So he gives him directions through this arch doorway to get there directly, get to Alton directly. His directions include uh, taking stairs downward that makes Severian worried that he could end up in the tunnels under the Madison Tower again. The arch of the doorway is held up by pillars with sleeping faces at the top. 
which creeps Varian out. He mentions that the Madison Tower has agonized masks painted on its metal as well. Right. So having these faces seems to be pretty customary for maybe the guilds or different areas. The fact that you're going to have sleeping faces over an archive Mm -hmm. is creepy because it means that this is just a place where things go to stay, but it's not actively used. It's not a place of learning. And the way Master Alton's going to talk about it, that's kind of true. Yeah. That's, I think, where where his – he talks about he used to read the books. Now he just wants them as physical objects. And, yeah, he's just about maintaining things and right. keeping it pretty dormant, not about actually using it. I also want to see what the agonized masks <laughs> look like, images of people in pain. But very similar, I think, to theater masks of you know happy and sad, comedy and tragedy. That's what I immediately thought of. Based on the idea of the geography, I thought of perhaps um, you know Aztec or Mayan style masks of some ah. of some sort that you know he says are agonized, but there are many ways to very stylistically represent agonized in that way. They all look agonized to some extent. Cool. Well, it's also. They're here. They were they were faces that are on the tops of pillars, the capitals. The ones on the Madison Tower are just painted on, which I thought was kind of cool, like an idea that, you know, how well were those done? I don't know. <laughs> yeah. And he mentions here again, it's the metal of the tower. He does go down and when he's he follows the directions, does get dark for the second time. Well, he goes Well, before he goes there, he goes through a room where every picture has a book in it. Sometimes it's not obvious. You have to look hard to find the book, but it's always there. Which seemed very thematic. The idea that as you're getting closer to the library, the pictures are fitting what you're going to see, which I think should also make you think, okay, well, where was he heading when the pictures were about the moon? (laughs) Um, Or where was he heading when the pictures were about wings like leeches? That's a good point. if, If it's thematic, maybe it has something to do with space travel or something. So, hmm. The woman in the mortuary mask, she could be, you know, that could be a spacesuit. Who knows? Towards the necropolis, possibly. Yeah. But that at least seemed to be one thing that's an immediate question. But then it gets too dark. He has to walk with his hands stretched out in front of him. Because he's afraid. He's told he's going to come to a locked door. And so he's thinking about that. Right. He does. He goes, he goes, it's a spiral staircase. It has no railings. He gets, he has to go 30 steps and then he's in almost total darkness. He's got his hands stretched out. So he doesn't. And then he gets to the last step and he he kind of tries to take the next step and stumbles a bit. And he says, I was left to grope across an uneven floor in total darkness. And then clang, he says, who's there? A voice called. It was a strangely resonant one that's like the sound of a bell tolled inside a cave. And that audible image is something we're going to get a few more times because Alton's voice is always is a very mm-hmm. unique voice. It's not the only place we're going to hear about a bell tolling either. Correct. So when he does go down here, I know some people have wondered, well, is this a totally different direction that he went? To me, what I think we're supposed to think is that the door was just mm-hmm. open and it could have been recently opened. Has someone recently walked through this way? to get up here or is it just thoughtlessness or carelessness that i mean we do find out what kind of disarray the library is in well olden is right there so he could be you know he could have just opened that door and and he's he doesn't need the lights on because he's blind true so yeah this is one where we end 
not, I mean, it's not a big dramatic moment, but when you had mentioned before that the, the, this and the next chapter could be a pair. Yeah. I mean, this could just, well, yeah, it, it just feels like this was an originally a chapter and he, he decided, well, it, this is so much longer than all the other chapters. And- yeah. Well, we've already mentioned some strange theories, but should we do Curiositas Earthus? Yeah. Curiositas Earthus. So there are a lot of things that are already odd about Rudazend and some long, I still feel like long stretches of speculation to get people there. I think the one that went really, really far to me was I did find someone who suggested that Rudazend is a hierogrammic. <laughs> um, that one seemed to get really far. And it had to do with Rudazend possibly also being Father Inire. Now, it is possible to go way down the line a bit that Inire could be like Zadkiel. Mm-hmm. He could be a high row or hierogrammic or whichever version or level we want to talk about. But there was one theory that said that Rudazend himself was a different form of Inire, not Inire in disguise, mm. but actually another form of Inire where Inire takes forms of different people and appears in different ways, just like supposedly or they, on their reading, Zadkiel does in Earth of the New Sun, take different forms at different times. Um, it got really weird. This one was on the Earth list, and it got really complicated in the sense of thinking about Inire, again, not being in disguise in different places, but actually metaphysically appearing at different points of space and time. And that that, this person thought, was a better explanation of how Rudazen and Inire could be the same person rather than just Inire being in Well, I think that some of that, some, some of the, his different shapes involved actually being an ape or a monkey and, or, or at least some mm-hmm. people interpreted it that way. And that could be, that could be. But then to make the further jump that Rudazen is then also a different metaphysical projection of Inire at different points. That's when I start to, to sort of lose my bearings. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. What, what would be right. going and on? It, once, once you get to a level of too much complexity, I feel often feel like you, I feel like, okay, at, at some point, why do, why do I care about this? What am I gaining from this anymore? The other curiosity I found was someone who, and I, I'll say this is a curiosity, but this one I'm, I'm, this one I feel actually intrigued by it, which is the idea that we've gotten it wrong when we think we know what this astronaut is. Then that the painting they thought was actually of a different moon landing. This one went so far as to say the fact that it's really hard to find a single image that has all the components that Wolf describes of the astronaut, the gold plate, so it has to be in color, the flag, and the earth in the background, that that specifically means that we're in a different timeline. And um, the reason that one gets hard for me is that would assume then that Wolf had sort of gone through all the available moon images and very specifically described one that wasn't there that we didn't have. Yeah. Um, yeah. Really cool, <laughs> if possible, but uh starts again starts to to just step over that line of speculation but if it's in another timeline why not just assume it's it's a later date that for you know yeah. if something pre 1980 for a moon landing i mean 
at some point right. they're going to have to go back to the moon and do things before they they end up you know foresting it and when they're talking about their history even when they talk about their what's ancient history for them that can still easily be yeah, yeah exactly so so yeah so there's a lot of different options in there but i did think that one was interesting but the idea that we could prove that this is a different timeline or not the earth of our future because there is no particular photograph of any moon landing mm-hmm. that exactly fits those things. I thought that was pretty ingenious. Don't buy it, but I thought it was yeah. ingenious. But I, but then I, I keep thinking, well, this is no one ever. He, I guess they could. He always says pictures, so they they could be photographs. But photographs fade, and in a way that you know you can pictures are produce their colors you know more physically. So, I mean, after, mm-hmm. you know, tens of thousands of years, I'm sure there's no way any kind of a painting would survive either. But so I guess that doesn't really. Especially not if it's being washed with water. Over and over again. Yeah, that's a good point. And yeah, that he's got like a rag in a bucket. Well, wait, maybe, wait, maybe these paintings all have glass covers on them. Now that could be. And it. so they never get sooty, but only, but the glass does. Could well be. And it seems like if they're good curators, then, you know, and we're talking about, things that are tens, if not hundreds of thousands of years old, then hopefully they'd <laughs> yeah, be I hope well they preserved. would use something that's like, yeah, they maybe all have argon or something in the. Yeah. Still weird that they'd have to wipe smoke off of the front of it though. Yep. But well, Who knows? You know, if they've got torches and everything on there, I can't remember whether they, well, no, they have bulbs like down in the oubliette that are supposed to never burn out, but I think they also have, but they can't produce more of them. So there must be a lot of torches in use. Right. Yeah. They're not supposed to burn out, yes. but a few of them yeah. had. <laughs> Well, good. Well, everyone, thank you for listening. If you do have comments, especially if you have solutions to our questions of the Inire Rudazin connection or think you did find one of those paintings, we'd love to know. Please get in touch with us at Twitter or Facebook. And we'll we'll talk about it. Even if we're episodes down the line and you're listening to this a long time ago, we're certainly happy to go back and mention things that have come up chapters and chapters before. So don't feel like if you're not listening to the latest one, you can't comment on something we said, because I think we're more than happy to go back and mention earlier things. Yeah. Yeah. We're bound to to not to be able to resist commenting on that which is fun and things are going to come back as you know we just talked about how rudison will show up does he come up twice again uh he comes at least twice i think no he only comes up he comes up he shows up in house absolute and he show and then he comes to him at house absolute at the uh, end of citadel Auto. at the end okay yeah so two other times yeah so so rudison will certainly show up again other people and characters and events will show up again so let us know twitter facebook Otherwise, I think we will see you next time as we dive deeper into the very dark library with Master Olton. Terrific. Thanks for listening. The sun come up It was blue and gold The sun come up It was blue and gold Sun come up, it was blue and gold Ever since I put your picture in a frame I come calling in my Sunday Oh, you know what? Oh, I can't even talk about that yet because it hasn't come out yet fascinating this is fascinating (laughs) Fascinating. this is intriguing